Thank you, Adam. And uh, good morning. Now, apologies from Joseph. He got to about four o'clock yesterday afternoon, having just finished running his third church service for the week already. And uh, he said he started to feel a bit wobbly, so he took himself to bed. He sent out the, uh, the message at about four o'clock saying, I haven't quite finished the sermon yet and uh, we'll see how we go. Dave, you might need to step up. And uh, when I messaged him back at about 6.30, he'd just gotten up and he said, no, <laughs> I'm not going to be there tomorrow. So what we have today is uh, most of Joe's sermon and whatever I could finish off at the end last night. So what I think we need to do is pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is powerful and that what we have to listen to today is something that will, if we let it, change our lives. We ask, please, as we sit before you now, that in humility we would be able to evaluate ourselves rightly, that we might know how to live your ways. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, who remembers, this is going back a little while, who remembers the Dean of the Cathedral in the 1990s? It was a man with a very unusual name. Well done, Aaron. I only asked it at this congregation because I thought you might know. Boak Jovens. Now, one of Boak's most distinctive features was his voice. Uh, he, I, he had a very deep, raspy... Think, um, think Christian Bale doing Batman, right? I'm Batman. Think that, that kind of, right? Very profound voice. Now, one of uh, Boak's sermons was on Galatians 6, the passage that we're looking at today. And uh, he, he began in his very deep, gravelly voice, which I, I won't do quite that much because otherwise I won't be able to preach the rest of the sermon. But he began by saying, today I want to talk to you about fructification. The fructification of the Holy Spirit, a tremendous thing. And of course, the congregation sitting there all went... Did he just swear at us? I mean, what, what, what is this word? Now, look, I consider myself to be okay with words. It's kind of part and parcel of the life I live. But honestly, not even Colin Buchanan had that one in his big words that end in shun. Fructification. Now, of course, as soon as someone tells you that it describes the process of bearing fruit, you think, oh, yeah, it's kind of there in the word, isn't it? Fructification, it kind of works. What Bogue was talking about was, well, as believers and as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to bear fruit. Now, we've heard it over and over in the letter to the Galatians so far. Let me give you the brief recap of the entire series. Today, we wrap it up. We are saved, each and every one of us, by God's grace and God's grace alone. Nothing we can do, religiously, spiritually, financially, morally, socially, you pick whatever solution you want, none of them will justify us before God. We are sinners in need of grace. Now, the truth that the Bible teaches is that God's grace is shown in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus in our place, and that grace is enough. It's perfectly sufficient. It's what we need, and it is all that we need. God justifies us. He does it. We don't justify ourselves and He has done it by paying for us. All we do is trust Him for it. Right? So the, the sentence, we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ 
alone. And that salvation is truly, completely freeing. We are no longer slaves to sin, no longer slaves to death, no longer slaves to somehow trying to work our way into God's good graces to pay off our debt, to reach the bar. We are free by God's grace and free to start living as we are meant to live, right? As someone who loves God and who loves other people, the two greatest commandments that we started our service with. It's not, you remember, a freedom to do whatever our flesh wants, whenever our flesh wants, with whoever our fresh flesh wants. It's the true freedom of being able now to live a life of love. Do you remember the picture from two weeks ago, the derailed train? You put it back on the tracks, it now runs freely. Or the picture from last week, we used to be thistles that could only produce thistle fruit and instead we've been turned into love trees that produce love fruit, which is a bit of a weird metaphor, but there you go. Part of the tremendous work of God's grace in us, that He's given us His new power to be able to live this freedom. It's not a vague power, it's not the force, it's the power that comes from God's Holy Spirit coming and dwelling within us. The one who lives in us and transforms us day to day, such that we, we begin to hate the things of the past. Our mind changes, our heart changes, our desire changes, so that what we used to be becomes abhorrent to us. And who God is becomes delightful. We start to take on a completely new character, transformed from the inside out. Can a Christian do whatever he wants? was the question last week. And the answer was, well, yes, because God changes what it is that we want. That's what Paul is talking about when he says the Holy Spirit bears fruit in our lives. That's what Boak was talking about when he said the tremendous work of fructification. And I think I'm just about done with that word. So I, I, I think that's it, right? Thank you, Joe. Right. You, can, you can see God at work in the life of a person who's been forgiven. You can see God at work in the life of a person who's been adopted into God's family by Jesus. It's written all over that person. Remember chapter 5 and verse 22? Now look, I hope you've got your Bible open, right? Every week you're going to hear that reminder. Chapter 5, verse 22, just before our reading. This is what the Christian person comes to look like. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Now we talked about them in depth last week. You can find the recording of that online. But this is what God is working in us right now to make us like that, new character, a new, a new demeanour, a new self. Now, of course, it's not instantaneous, is it? We're, we're all still works in progress. None of us have achieved perfection, but these are the changes God is bringing out. I wonder if you look back over your Christian life, however long your journey may be, for some of you it might be days since you gave your life to Jesus, for some of you, it might be years, even decades. I wonder if you look back, can you see that these are the things that God is developing in you? A deeper sense of joy in His love through difficulty. Greater patience when the going is really going, when it's headwinds. The ability to control yourself. Not that it's been a smooth journey. Right? Most of these things come through fire, through ordeal, through trial. But God's Spirit 
has come into us and has given us life and He is transforming us. It takes time, doesn't it? Uh, the, the twins, our twins turn one in just a couple of weeks, which is hard to believe. Uh, here you go, um, gratuitous photo. There you go, why not? Uh, this was their 11-month photo, and as you can see, it's already getting very difficult to take photos of them lying still. I'm not quite sure how the one-year photo is going to go. They're nearly one, but they're still spoon-fed. They can't walk yet, they can't talk yet, they don't have teeth yet. I mean, they're nearly one, and they're still just gumming away with their little... Right? But that will all come, won't it? They will grow, they will develop. It takes a long time, but soon enough, not only are they going to learn to do those things, but they're going to start to develop a, a rather uncanny resemblance to the ones who teach them those things. <laughs> I really hope it's their mother, not their father, right? But it's just what happens with children. They start to look like their parents. Baby Christians are the same. It takes time, it comes slowly, it's often taught to us, growing to be full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's the character. But, and we come to the topic of today, what does it look like? Day to day, as we go about relating with one another, what does it look like in our actions and our decisions? What does it mean to bear this fruit, to keep in step with the Spirit, at a practical level. Now, Galatians 6, as we wrap it up today, we're going to see the fruit of the Spirit in action. Uh, I think Paul has got four main areas that he wants to lay out that teach us how we are to relate and deal with other people, and in particular with other Christians. It's interesting that all of these examples are about us with other people, which of course is what makes it challenging, isn't it? <laughs> You could just have you and God and be perfectly patient. You never need to be impatient with God. You can be perfectly joyful. It's just you and God. How lovely would that be? If you didn't ever have to relate to or deal with anyone else, I reckon it'd be pretty easy to have love and joy and peace and patience and all the rest of it. Or would it? It's, it's one of those lines of reasoning that sometimes le lead people into the kind of the monastic life. Right? I, don't, I don't think we come across too many of those these days. But people who are like, I, I want to remove myself from the world so that it's just me and God so that I can develop a much godlier character. There's a certain logic to it, but, but it, I think it's actually absurd. Because that's not really bearing fruit, that's just hiding from reality. In fact, all of these fruits of the Spirit require other people in your life. If there's no one to be gentle with, are you being gentle? If there's no one to be faithful to, are you being faithful? If there's no one to be patient with, are you being patient? That's not, it's just selfishness in the end. So here we go, four areas where Paul wants to show us the Spirit's fruit in action. And all of them require all of this character. Here we are, it's in your outline by the way. Uh, if, if you've got one of the handouts, you'll see where we're going. Number one, the Spirit's fruit in action. Number one, dealing with those caught up in sin. You can see that's how chapter 6 begins. Have a look with me at chapter 6 and verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. 
That's a reality of this life, that we will face, every one of us, an ongoing struggle with sin. And we saw that last week, right? That we've begun the war, we haven't finished it. The conversion to life under the Lord Jesus Christ is a declaration that I am now at war with my old self. I want to put that man, Pastor David, he's a jerk, I want to put him to death. So that new David, who lives under Jesus, might reign. But it's a tension, it's a war between the old sinful nature and the new life of the Spirit. And like any war, it's not one over time, and in fact there will be times when each one of us stumbles and fall in sin. Whether it's old patterns of behaviour that we've carried over, it's hard to undo the patterns of a lifetime. Old habits, old sins, or sometimes something new. We were exposed to something that's unexpected, it sucked us down a path that we know isn't good for us, right? I mean, I think all of us look at sin and we know we ought not to do it, it's bad, we're ashamed of it, Occasionally it might even be spectacular and public, although often very, very private, such that few, if any, people ever are aware of it. Now, of course, if that's you, if that's where you find yourself, you're currently walking in sin, please stop, repent, find forgiveness, make restitution if need be and seek to walk in the light. But what should the rest of us do? when one of us is overtaken by wrongdoing in any of the many kinds of ways that it might happen. Well, Paul says, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you won't be tempted. Let me point out four things about what Paul says. Firstly, notice you can't just ignore it. It's very easy, perhaps out of embarrassment, perhaps out of a sense of it's not my problem, to just pretend not to notice or maybe you think, I don't want to, if I, become, if I get involved, this is going to be awkward, right? I mean, if I know their sin and I have to confront them in some way and conflict is hard. But if you're going to keep in step with the Spirit, if we are going to live out the fruit, Paul's telling us, you have to do something. Sitting back and hoping that it's going to end okay, or that someone else will do something, it's just not going to work. In that moment, your brother or sister in Christ needs you that that's exactly what love is to do good to someone else when they are in sin you loving them is to do something about it but secondly we're told that when we do act make sure it's with the right purpose the right motive the right intent which is to restore them it's all too easy to point out someone else's sin and issues and problems because it makes me feel good. That, that's easy to do, isn't it? I get to put them down, it makes me seem better. Rather than to actually want to help them, right, to move forward, to deal with the problem, the aim has to be their restoration. It's got to be driven by love with a desire for their good and their joy. Right, you can't ignore it, do it with the right purpose. Thirdly, he says, do it with a gentle spirit. We don't display the fruit of the Spirit if we go in guns blazing, yelling, screaming, putting them down, or perhaps even worse, bitching about them behind their back. 
That is not the fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness is part of the fruits. It should characterize our interactions with each other. So it's going to require patience. Now, that's not to say that there won't be times when you've got to put boundaries in place and you have to be firm. Again, remember, gentleness doesn't equal weakness. It means using your strength for good. There may well be times when people have to be stood down from ministry, removed from positions of leadership, asked to forgo certain privileges for the sake of noticing the seriousness of what they're doing. But even when those things have to happen, they're done with kindness and love out of a desire for their good. And final thing to notice then, notice the personal danger of falling into sin yourself. It may well be the same sin that they're in. I mean, the the easiest example of that is you make yourself an accountability partner for someone else, right? Someone who's struggling with pornography, you get this internet, the software that you put in your computer and it sends a report to the other person and then what do you know? They have a report of all the dodgy websites you've been looking at and what a temptation to go and have a look myself. Justifying it, right? No, no, I'm helping them. Be very careful. But I think there's also the temptation to other kinds of sin. Pride, ungentleness, impatience. Be very careful when you're seeking to restore someone you know is sinning that you yourself don't sin. It's going to take a great deal of self-control. Right, there's the first of the practical outworkings. It requires all of the fruits. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. If you're going to restore someone in a godly way, you yourself are going to have to be filled with these. Right? You who are spiritual. There's the summary for you. Second outworking. Paul moves on to the second area, bearing each other's burdens. That is being there for one another. Well, as Christians, brothers and sisters, whatever it is that's going on, have a look at verse 2. He says, carry one another's burdens in this way. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Well, that's a very simple sentence. Isn't it a great one? carry one another's burdens. All sorts of burdens, right? I mean, there's the stumbling in sin issue, we've just seen. Walk alongside the brother or sister who's in sin. Maybe financial burdens. Barnabas, this church is named after, right? Um, One of the first things that we know that he did as a Christian was to sell land he owned, sold his home, it was back in Cyprus, in order to give the money for the care of the widows in the church. Isn't that great? Imagine you just one day you think, actually, there's a person at church who's really in need. There's a group of people. We have to set up a fund so that we can care for them. I'm going to sell my holiday home. I'm going to give it all to this fund. I mean, never even occurs to us, does it? We carry one another's burdens. A whole bunch of them got together to make sure the widows among them were looked after and fed. But there's other burdens, right? Not just financial. Um, Paul talks in Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Now, we don't often think of rejoicing with those who rejoice as a burden. (laughs) It can be, can't it? That the seed of envy, oh, I wish I could have, if only that was me, as opposed to from a glad heart, rejoicing with the one who succeeds, who triumphs, who's rewarded, who's 
mourning with those who mourn. I, I'll tell you, it was, it was a wonderful day on Wednesday, Keith, uh, Keith Teasdale's funeral. It was a great crowd of people came. And interesting, looking around the room, all the church people, actually so many of them had never even met Keith. But here for Wendy, here to care for her in her grief. Now, there's, there's caring for those who are lonely. I'd love us as a church to not have anyone lonely at Christmas. It happens. Uh, people who are from all sorts of different circumstances, estranged from family, living alone, whatever it might be, where just Christmas is a depressing time, caring for one another, praying with each other in times of illness or hardship, just, just giving a hug at the right time or not giving a hug at the right time, depending on who the recipient is, however the case may go. I think Paul's been deliberately non-specific in these areas, right? He, he wants to tell us the, the practical outworking, but not limit it to certain contexts. Bear one another's burdens. Thirdly, as we talk about this practical outworking, Paul moves on to, his, uh, moves on to self-perception in relation to others. There, there you go, there's a practical outworking of the Spirit. View yourself honestly. Look down at verse 3. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work and then he can take pride in himself alone, not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. How am I supposed to think of myself? Well, not as more than I really am. Uh, Australians, we're, we're a rather funny group of people. You know, 80% of Australian men consider themselves to be better than average at sport. Which, if you know anything about statistics, means that at least 30% are having ourselves on. It's also weird because 80% of Australian men consider themselves to be better than average at driving. Which is kind of weird because I think it says something about our statisticians, that they just pick the number 80% and just say, yeah, that'll do, that'll do, we don't bother measuring anymore. Paul says, don't deceive yourself, don't put tickets on yourself when you really shouldn't. Instead, give yourself a regular, really good self-examination. How am I going with God? Am I really thankful as I'm called to be? Or am I getting a bit bitter? Am I pushing myself to grow as a disciple of Christ? Am I really doing something that's useful for God's kingdom? Now, that's a good set of questions to ask. Or am I just going through the motions, playing it safe? Actually, I'm, I'm really more invested in other things than the kingdom of God, than righteousness. Examine your motives, he says. I love how Paul knows how to put his finger on people's spiritual pulses. Again, verse 4, right? Let each person examine his own work, take pride in himself, not compare himself to someone else. I mean, is that what we do all the time? So easy to excuse ourselves or to take pride in ourselves. Oh, because at least I'm not as bad as that lazy, stupid glutton over there, right? Whew, look at them. Imagine being that person. I'm not them, so I must be all right. I'm not as bad a Christian as that person. Did you, they haven't been at church for three weeks. Oh, my goodness. God, have you seen them? Don't do that. That's not keeping in step with the Spirit. That's called keeping up with the Joneses. Have an honest, rightful self-appraisal. And fourthly, fourth area that he tells us how we, to, uh, to, to live out the fruit of the Spirit. Not getting tired of doing good. 
Don't become weary. It's that paragraph from verses 6 down to verse 10. Let me read it for us again, verse 6. Let the one who's taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. Don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap, because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. The one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. I think in some ways, this is almost the heart of today's passage. How are you going to live the life of the Spirit? Well, you've got two choices before you. You can either sow flesh or you can sow spirit. You, you can walk in the ways of the world or you can walk in the ways that God has taught you. And the outcome of each of them is obvious. Because if you go and plant an apple seed, you're not going to grow kumquats. You're going to grow apples. If you go and plant the flesh, that is what you will harvest. You can't plant flesh and harvest, harvest spirit. <laughs> As if you could somehow fool God, mock Him, that He would reward you with spirit when all that you've planted is flesh. The thought process can go a little bit like this sometimes for Christians, right? I'm saved. I mean, I'm, I'm on my way to heaven, right? I, but re really bad things can't happen. Like, God's got me, right? This is our Calvinist at work, Calvinism at work, right? I'm under grace. The Lord will never let me go. I'm guaranteed eternity. Once saved, always saved. So, whatever it is that I do, there can't actually be all that really serious consequences to it, can there? It doesn't really matter all that much if I just dabble in sin. I'd be forgiven. I could walk in the flesh. Friends, God is not mocked, he says. As if you can somehow say, Jesus, I love you, but I spit in your face. God, you're God of my life, except for all of these areas of vice. I'll keep them, thank you. You, you really think you can mock God like that? I think there are two serious realities we need to face. The first one is that sin, the short-term reality, is that sin has consequences. Usually immediate, generally quite bad. You sow sin, you sow to the flesh and you will reap the whirlwind, you will reap the works of the flesh. That's what we saw last week. And you will not reap the fruit of the Spirit. To sow flesh is simply to pander to the flesh. John Stott wrote it like this. Every time we allow our mind to harbour a grudge, to nurse a grievance, to entertain an impure fancy or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company, whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist, every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying, every time we read pornographic literature, every time we take a risk, that strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. 
some Christians sow to the flesh seemingly every single day and then are confused. They wonder why they don't reap a harvest of holiness or usefulness for God. They make it simple. Holiness is a harvest. Holiness is a harvest of sowing to the Spirit, not the flesh. Sow to the flesh, you harvest corruption. In the case of the believer, this corruption is often the corruption of your Christian experience. The loss of peace, the loss of joy, the loss of worship, service, the loss of usefulness. God feels distant, we say. As if given our sowing, he should be anything else. No, Paul says, do not grow weary of doing good. Sow to the flesh. Live out the character God is producing in you. Because you know what? That second serious reality is the profound warning of chapter 5 and verse 21, which we saw last week. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There comes a point at which salvation is at stake. God will not be mocked. If the only seed to ever be scattered in your life is the flesh, Has the Spirit of God worked in you? No, what are we to do? Not get tired of doing good. For we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. It's hard sometimes, isn't it? I've been sowing for a long time. (sighs) When, When does the harvest come? feels like a long walk, a long battle. When am I going to see the fruit? Let us not lose heart in doing good. In due time we will reap. In, in God's time, in God's season. Well, don't, don't act like a child who expects to plant the seed and see the fruit the next day. That's, that's my children. We planted apple seeds. We put them in a little cotton with water, right? And within an hour, I was being asked, so when, when do we get the apples, right? Like, that's just, you're like, dude, we've got a long way ahead, right? I'm sowing, the sowing's hard, I'm getting tired, I don't know if I'm seeing what I expected to see. Well, this is for you, don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. Rather, as he says in verse 10, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Seize the opportunities. Can I also say this means be open about your needs? It's a strange paradox in this passage, isn't it? Carry your own burden and carry each other's burdens are both in this same chapter. I take it when it's time that you are in need, it's okay, be in need. The, the we, no one said to the widows in the early church, carry your own burden, mate, suck it up, we're not providing. No, they had a need, they provided. Be open about it. Carry your own burdens as you are able to and carry the burden of other, and be open. Don't deny others the opportunity to do good, do good for you. <laughs> when we stand strong, oh, I can do it, I don't need anyone else. Actually, it's really good for your brothers and sisters to care for you. It helps them grow, let them care for you. Especially, he says, the household of faith. Now, I think that's a verse that we need to ponder a little bit more. Isn't it powerful that he puts a priority on it? Do good to everyone, absolutely, but it starts here. There's a priority to God's people. 
to care for your brothers and sisters in Christ. I, w- I wonder, just as, a, as a, a little aside, a ponder, how committed are you to the household of faith? How committed are you to this group of people? Do they come often second, third, fourth? I'm sorry, I I can't come. I've got a friend's thing. Uh, I'd love to serve on a Sunday, but I can't because my family has lunch every Sunday together, so I can't can't serve. Isn't that an interesting thought that this group of people holds a priority in Paul's mind? All right, let's wrap it up. Like a good speaker, Paul turns back to the issue that he began with, right? We, we, we bring about fructification is what I should be talking about right now. We bring it all the way back to the start. As we talk about the circumcision party once again, except that now, having been through the whole letter, we can see very clearly that those false teachers that we began with, there's none of the fruit of the Spirit in how they behave. We can see it very clearly now. Look at verse 11 with me. Look at what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting, he says. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves, and yet they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. They boast in the wrong, the the flesh. Literally, they want to boast about the flesh. (laughs) And spiritually, they want to boast about the flesh. You've kept the law. They fear opposition, so they just go with a safe gospel. That's tempting, isn't it? These guys, they didn't want to be persecuted, so they changed the gospel message. They boasted in the wrong, it is so easy to do. So, so, I was watching a live show this week from a, a Christian content creator, right? And the man who calls himself a pastor. And he got to a point where he was doing a sort of a, sort of a semi-testimony, you know, tell you about myself and, and why we run this online ministry that he runs. And he had his version of the gospel, which was appalling. God loves you, he said. And you think, well, that's not appalling. What's wrong with that? God values you, he said. I'm still not seeing the problem, David. Each and every one of you, God thinks you're special. He wants, I want you to know how loved you are, how valuable you are, how precious you are to God. Every single person who's watching this stream, he says. And he listed a range of categories of types of people and walks of life. He promised that every single one of them, God had something powerful and special and privileged in mind for them, that God loves them. And that was it. warm and fuzzy isn't it isn't that lovely there's going to be no persecution about that message no one's going to write letters of complaint about that one certainly no one's going to whip him for it it's beautiful we all got the warm fuzzies how lovely i'll come back and watch again but it wasn't the gospel because he had a bunch of sinners that he didn't tell them that they are in desperate need of a saviour In fact, the thing that Paul boasts about was the one thing that he was missing. Look at verse 14. As for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. Both circumcision, uncircumcision, they mean nothing 
What matters instead is a new creation. I'm not going to boast about the flesh. I'm not going to boast about myself. I'm not going to boast about the world. I'm not going to boast about my ministry and the size of it and the number of converts. And all of that's irrelevant. What matters is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So can I say, as, as we finish this series, if you walk away and it's all blurred into whatever it is that it's blurred into the last 10 weeks, boast in the cross of Christ. You walk away holding on to Jesus' death for you and that is the basis and beginning of the spiritual walk. That is the thing that will bring all the rest that we've been talking about with it. Hold fast to the cross. The world, they're crucified to that. The flesh, crucified to that. The law, crucified to that. All that's left is Jesus. I tell you what, there's a wonderful promise and blessing that awaits. Verse 16, may peace come to all those who follow this standard and mercy even to the Israel of God, even to the law keepers and the law breakers, should they come and kneel at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, they too will find the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That moment where you paid for us. Would you teach us to kneel before our Lord, to receive the forgiveness that you have given, to receive your Spirit who brings new life. Would you teach us from today to live out your work in our lives, Live out the Spirit, live out the fruit, loving one another well as we love you. Amen.